0: Father of mercies as we just finished singing that we would behold your great name. We would behold that you are the God who seated on the throne reigning and ruling in majesty now. As we we realize that and we take that and remind us your word says that apart from Christ we can do nothing. As we seek to worship you here now as we seek to look to your word, look to the words of Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount. My prayer for all of us is that his words would convict us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Convict those who have never put their trust in Christ to see their great need for a Savior. And that for us who who walk with Christ now, that you would stir our hearts towards living a radically different life because of what Christ has done. His teachings are amazing, beyond words. Pray that we would worship you now as we look at them together. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, if you'd like to join me in the book of Matthew, we're going to finish chapter 5 today as we continue in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've been with me as we've we've gone this past year or so, walking through the first chapter of this series, teaching of Christ. We've seen many iconic teachings and some of his most famous sayings have already been said and we're only one chapter in and today will be no different because today we're going to look at verses 38 through 48. If you look at, depending on how your Bible is laid out, you might see different paragraphs starting in verse 17. And what we've seen in verses 21 through what we'll look at today, the end of 48, is is Jesus has given us these six different areas by which we must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. So it started back in verse 17 of chapter 5. He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he says, Not even... Uh, Heaven and earth will pass away until the law is accomplished. Verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. And then he says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. So he says this, and then he launches into these Sentences are these paragraphs on anger, on lust, divorce, oaths, and then today we're gonna to see retaliation and loving your enemies. So each of these shows how Jesus fulfills and better interprets the old testament law for us and shows us how we how he set the standard for us in life in godliness. And the stand the standard that he's been giving us in the Sermon on the Mount. It really does two things for us. First, it shows us that we are woefully inadequate to live to Christ's standard. If it was up to us to live rightly, we would all be condemned to hell. We just we cannot do it. The Sermon on the Mount is showing us that week after week. And remember that the Sermon on the Mount is not an explanation of how to get into the kingdom. But it's a call to show us Christians. That we need Christ to pay for our sins to bring us into this kingdom. Then we can see the Sermon on the Mount as a road map to pursuing a Christ-bought holy life. And that's the, the second thing we need to see in our time in the Sermon on the Mount. We don't save ourselves, but only Christ saves us. His standard is perfection. We'll see that today. And we won't earn heaven by trying to live as Christ suggests. But once he saves us, once he brings us into this kingdom he's speaking so highly of, we can then see this message as as the pursuit of holiness by the grace that Christ supplies. So with all that said, let's look together at verses 38 through 48 of chapter 5. Let me read them for you now. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's go back to the first section, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So the first section begins with a direct quote of the Old Testament. You can either find it in Exodus 21, 24 or Deuteronomy 5, 18. I would imagine many of you have heard this or something like this before, even if you don't run in Christian circles. It's something that gets said in a lot of different contexts. But if you were to look At either section of the Old Testament, we would see that this teaching is looped into a section about laws regarding justice for judges and keeping the peace within Israel's society. The the idea teaches that justice does not exact revenge, but justice seeks to command a punishment equal to the crime. This is actually common now in almost all Western law codes. You would find it in the U.S. Constitution in the Eighth Amendment. Maybe you've heard the phrase, no cruel or unusual punishments. And other societies have something similar. The big idea is that if someone commits an offense or, or a crime against another member of society is committed, justice calls for swift but tempered countermeasures to the wrong. This is a teaching of external actions of man demanding external judgments from those sinful actions. There is nothing wrong with this, I would argue. there it's, It is still good and right for justice systems and countries to operate in this, this way. Actually, we would prefer it. I don't think anybody here wants a dictator who doesn't want fair and equitable law. But it would seem that Jesus is bringing this up because in his society, this was moving away from the law courts and into personal relationships. So therefore, Jesus being the fulfillment of the law teaches us that really a pretty radical response to those who would take action against us in our personal spheres. Quote says this, what Jesus affirms in this section was rather than this principle, though it pertains to law codes and to the judgment of God, is not applicable to our personal relationships. These are to be based on love, not justice. Our duty to individuals who wrong us is not retaliation, but the acceptance of injustice without revenge or redress. It says, do not resist the one who is evil, which is the beginning of verse 39. Jesus' response to this law is, do not resist the one who is evil. So there's a difference between keeping the law of the land and how we should function in our personal relationships. Jesus says, do not resist that one who is being evil. So then, how should we respond when confronted by someone who is treating us with evil intent? You know these verses, right? Turn the other cheek, give the cloak, walk the second mile, give without refusing. It's it's pretty iconic. We probably have all heard it before, and it's very radical indeed. What we see in this text is that there aren't many guidelines as to what this looks like in our individual lives. There are no out clauses that say you can take the the evil until a certain point, and then by rights you can do this. That's just not what Jesus says. So how do we understand them? How do we understand what Jesus is teaching us here this morning? And I I think there are two general ways to start to understand. First, while these are not to the level of rhetorical hyperbole. So first thing I would say is, this is not Jesus saying, this is the loftiest goal of all time. Uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to raise you up. I never expected you to live this way. This is just something that I wanted to say because the, the Jews were upon me and I really wanted to, to get them thinking. I don't think we can go there. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's what Jesus would say. And I would also say that, that these aren't exactly rules that are followed woodenly either. If we think that every law case must be left alone, or if we ever think that we're being physically assaulted, we cannot literally protect ourselves or our family, I think we're missing the point. Because the second thing we want to think about here is Jesus is talking about retaliation. Not about being a doormat or about about not stopping or not dealing with the things that that come to you. No, it's, it's retaliation is what he's speaking of. So the two ditches to avoid are being a passive Christian that doesn't do anything, but the other one is being a petty Christian who wants to get back at everyone at every turn. Think about the playground. How do kids respond? One kid taps, the other pushes. The first punches, the second tackles. And it escalates until it's broken up by somebody. That's not just kids that do that. We, as men and women, do the same. We're just more subtle about it. If your husband leaves the dishes in the sink, you move his tools. If you have a friend who is late today, you come late to the next coffee meeting just to teach him a lesson. And that can go on and on and escalate as well. And while I think most of us haven't had a playground running as adults, I think these have a more spiritual feel as well. So either within our personal relationships or when we're persecuted for Christ's Sake. So I think really where we want to focus our mind on on this idea of not retaliating as believers is when, when we encounter evil in the wild as Christians, or when we are specifically persecuted because of our sake or because of our status as followers of Christ. And so it can be the petty stuff I talked about, but it can also be some serious things. So a couple other texts to look at as we're thinking about this this morning. Would join me in Romans chapter twelve. So Romans chapter 12, I do believe that, that Paul is picking up on these themes of the Sermon on the Mount and continues to, to speak on them in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 14. And what's really fascinating, and it's kind of hard to untangle, is that Paul kind of mashes them together, both Do not retaliate and love your enemies, which is coming next. So just kind of suspend that and realize that we're going to talk about that as well. But verse 14 starts with, Bless those who persecute you, which Jesus would say, Pray for those who persecute you, which is coming in a moment. Bless them and do not curse them. If you jump down to verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 18 through 21, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will help keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. This text and the Sermon on the Mount text are really showing us that these offenses that come toward us are something about being defamed for the sake of Christ or, or in, our, in our interpersonal relationships. Maybe we just encounter uh, evil in the wild. I'll, I'll have an example here in a minute about what that looks like. Uh, but but the idea of the insults and the suing and the service and the giving, everything that Jesus is speaking about and what Paul is speaking about here are being pursued uh, because of our standing as Christians. Because we either are followers of Christ and when we experience sin and evil in the wild, our response matters because we're followers of Christ. And, and, if, and if God forbid, we're also receiving persecution for our faith, like some of the believers that were written to in the scriptures, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 to see how some of the, uh, the hearers of the book of Hebrews, the first readers of the book of Hebrews, We're responding. So if you're in Hebrews chapter 10, join me in verse 32. And the setting here is the author of Hebrews is is writing to this, this church. And apparently they've been dealing with some pretty radical wild things in where they live. So if you're in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. Sidebar, I would say they're probably visiting the believers who are in prison. So they they have compassion on those believers in prison. And then next, in verse 34, And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So, this, this church, these believers, were being persecuted in a lot of different ways. They were enduring hardships and struggles and sufferings. They were being publicly exposed uh, and, and receiving reproach or ta- taking on uh, extra evil because they were publicly being exposed as followers of Christ, up to and including the point where they were, their, their personal property was being plundered, right? This idea of, of suing and taking a tunic, this idea of, of stuff being taken. And plundered from them because they were followers of Christ. And yet they joyfully accepted it because they knew what they had. Or if you're still in that part of the Bible, turn over to First Peter. First Peter chapter 4. Starting in verse 12. First Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are being insulted, that's the that idea of slapping on the cheek, for the sake of the name, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So the idea is, Paul is saying, if you are suffering for the sake of the name, do not be surprised by that. You, you also should not be surprised if you're suffering because you're doing wrong. But if you are suffering because you, you do right, don't be ashamed of that. Don't, don't stop doing that because it's hard or difficult. But glory in it, that you would be counted As the type of Christian that God would be glorified in you to show the world that when you experience sufferings and trials, that you can glorify God. And one more in 1 Peter, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 21. So 2.21 says this. For... To this you've been called. So that four connects to this idea of enduring uh, uh, servants working, uh, being under an unfit master and lead, uh, an unfit uh, servant. The servant is, is, is under an, a, an unfit leader. And so he says uh, that you should endure that. It is good to endure that. Verse 21, four. To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. What does he do? Leaving you an example So what is this example that that Christ left for us? This, This example in verse 21, that you might follow in his steps. What are we following in? He committed no sin. We can't say that. That's not the example. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus was physically abused, verbally abused, and yet Peter says there's an example in there that we are meant to follow. And what is it? And I would say it is not retaliation. That's what the Sermon on the Mount would say. What we do is we continually entrust ourselves to God, the God who judges justly. And if that sounds like a large Herculean task, many of the commentators we we'll agree with you. One said this, Nowhere is the challenge of the Sermon on the Mount greater than here. Nowhere is the distinctness of the Christian counterculture more obvious. Nowhere is our need for the power of the Holy Spirit more compelling than in this text. These words ring true, don't they? The idea of giving up our rights, giving up our, our, our ability to just fix it, or, or just this vengeance, and I want to be justified. It's hard to let that go. It's a scary thing. If we're being honest, we don't want it. Because I don't. I shouldn't speak for you. But I would say that this is not a position of weakness, but it's what Jesus has called meekness. If you turn back, if you get back to Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes, which would be the verses 3 through 12 of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, he says, verse 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. In verse 10 and 11, he's already talked about this topic. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we can find true happiness, blessedness, the sermon, the the Beatitudes would say, true and lasting happiness are found in enduring this type of persecution. I think Pastor Ken Hughes said it so well here, he said, Jesus changes our lives. We no longer consider it our duty to get even. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is fine for the court but not for our, rela- for our relations with others, even our enemies. Thanks to Jesus, we have let go of our legalistic obsession with fairness. We are glad that Jesus was not fair with us. For if we were to have gotten what was coming to us, it would not have been good. As Jesus' followers, we give, exi- we give ourselves to the highest welfare of others, even our enemies. We put up with the sins and insults of others for Christ's sake and theirs. Though hurt many times before, we refuse to withdraw into the shell of self. We do not run from hurt. We appear weak, but we are strong. For only the most powerful can live a life like this. But the power is not ours, but Christ's. So the teaching on on retaliation sets a high bar, and ultimately it's an unobtainable one on our part. We cannot obtain it apart from the grace of God. It doesn't give us a clear directive as to what it looks like in your life today. We have to rely on the same Holy Spirit to give us the power to pursue this lifestyle and how to respond to the specifics that come, come before us. So my final encouragement to all of you is, is what I said to myself when I read it this week, is, is don't try to justify your actions or find loopholes, but go forward in Christ to live at peace with all men as much as we're able and let my life be an example of what it looks like to have Christ as all I need. I don't need to take my own justice, but I can faithfully trust the one who judges all things rightly. Well, next in verse 43, Jesus picks up and quotes not only a text of scripture, but it would, it would appear to be a teaching uh, in that day. So verse 43 in chapter 5, it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now that phrase, and hate your enemy, is not going to be found anywhere in your Old Testament Bibles. So the question becomes, where, where does this come from? What, what is this idea that, that Jesus would say, you've heard this said, so the people that would have been listening to him originally would have known this phrase and understood this teaching. Part of it, the, the love your neighbor, comes clearly from the, from the Old Testament. They would have known, but there's this additional piece. So one potential idea has come to light in regards to interpretation of this verse. So if you listen to verse Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this idea of Leviticus 19.18 being loving your own people and loving your own neighbor has, had really shrunk what a neighbor was in Jewish culture. So think about... Uh, the, the story of the Good Samaritan, which would come later in Jesus' teaching. But let me give you a quote from somebody smarter than I that has done some reading on this Jewish teaching. So why, why did the Israelites make such an addition? Primarily because they were convinced that from a text like Leviticus 19.18, it confines the definition of neighbor to fellow Israelites only. And thus they would not tolerate any extension of the term to anyone else. Moreover, they felt that God's direction of their historic relations with other peoples, such as his command to exterminate the Canaanites and the imprecatory psalms, supported or maybe even called for this hatred of other nations. What they failed to take into account was the fact that those and similar commands, including the imprecatory psalms, were judicial, never individual so here's the big idea. The big idea is that some of the Jews seemed to overreach in their understanding of who a neighbor was and to the point where it was very narrow. Take away all of the, the, the texts about loving the soldier or the widow or the orphan and your I mean, that stuff was just thrown out the window. but they saw this neighbor as a very small and confined cross-section of the people that they, that they knew. They were God's chosen people didn't leave room for loving an enemy. So they, so they set aside all of that. So what he's doing is he's rebuking and giving an answer that is 180 degrees away from what the crowd would have thought. Verse 44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, which is the complete opposite of hate your enemy. And here we see more clearly how I think these two paragraphs also come together. The idea of, of persecution and those uh, with whom you have not peace, they, they don't require just not to retaliate, right? So that's step one is don't take your own vengeance. So that person that is, is treating you with evil intent, so don't take retaliation. Okay, I can get on board with that Jesus, that makes sense. Okay, I won't, I won't do that. But then he goes on to say, oh, and by the way, love them and pray for them. I mean, that, that's a pretty, pretty interesting change there. And, and imagining what that would have been like for, for those first hearers is almost beyond words. And I really, I really mean that. I mean, time and again, when I sit down to write these sermons, I find myself not being able to grasp the, the words to try and convey to you how deep and serious these, these words really are. They're so commonplace. We've heard them. They're so iconic. They get said so many places and yet the truths behind them are so revolutionary we forget it. We miss it. So just to sit and ponder about what Jesus is telling us is not only don't retaliate when wrong has been done against you, but love them and pray for them. Those who persecute you are so radically different than what, than what we really want on the inside. A couple of, of quotes. Uh, God did not teach his people a double standard of morality, one for your neighbor and one for your enemy. There's only one morality in Christ's economy. And Christosim, a a preacher from like the fourth century, saw the responsibility to pray for our enemies as the very highest summit of self-control, which is just something great to think about. Because this is truly otherworldly teaching and otherworldly standards. We are not naturally hardwired to do this which is what Jesus himself says in the next few verses. But now that we, we've sat with this idea of loving our neighbor, what does he say next in verse 45? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So first he's saying there's a big, there's a big payoff for being one who does this. It, it puts you as a status that all the believers want to be sons of God, sons of the Father. And also this, this phrase makes some sort of connection, I think, between verse 9 of chapter 5 about being peacemakers if you look at verse 9 it says blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God so there's this this some connection between being a peacemaker and praying for those who persecute you and I think one potential connection is that prayer is the most effective way to change the heart and mind of anyone so to make peace which God says those who those who make peace are blessed we don't want to rely on good mediation skills or people skills only Oftentimes when we talk about making peace and and mitigating conflict, we go to all the techniques, all the styles of of, of doing doing that well, including people skills and mediation skills and all these types of things. But if we don't make room for God, it won't be the lasting peace God calls us to make. So we do it through love and prayer. These are just amazing, powerful things. And too often, at least for me, they're the last things I think about when it comes to, to, to going through that type of situation, even as a believer. The last thing I think about when I think I have an enemy or I'm being persecuted is I should pray for that person. It's just not where I'm at most of the time. And so we need Jesus' words to remind us that. Next, we see that Jesus makes a connection in, in the second half of verse 45 where he says, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So he's connecting to us this picture of nature. Where What he's saying to the Jews is, have you ever noticed that uh, that it rains in places outside of Israel? You know, or maybe for us today we'd say, dear Christian, have you ever noticed that, that the farmer who, who goes to a church on Sunday and the farmer who doesn't believe in God both get rain at harvest time? Have you ever noticed that, that both places get, or both types of people get rain and sunshine and and harvest? So the point Jesus, I think, here is making is that there's a love that God has for the unbeliever in creation that allows for goodness to come to them, even if they are not obedient to God. So I was trying to think of an example of this. One that I thought of, it's, it's innocuous, it's, it's kind of lame, but it's at least personal, so you can hear it. Um, so my job full-time, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a manager of a sales team, and uh, in this last two weeks, I've had a guy, who's not on my team, continually call me and ask me questions about processes, and what to do here, and what to do there, and, 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 and I'm answering those questions. Now, the analogy would be, this man is not anywhere in my organizational chart. I have no obligation to help him. He does not report to me. He's not receiving any coaching. He's not getting anything from me, right? I'm not giving him anything as far as the job goes. But, but he's asking me for help. I know the answers. Seems like a good dude. Sidebar, found out on Friday he's a believer. Super cool. Not part of the story. But I just thought I wanted you to know that. Um, but we see that this, so what is my obligation to him as not his boss? My obligation is not to help him succeed, but because I consider myself the kind of guy that puts his company first, I will help this guy as time allows. In, the, in, in, a, in a similar way, I mean a much greater way, God has certain promises and commitments he has made to his children, saving faith and and, and all of the blessings that come from that. But there's this other side of it. Some theologians call it common grace. Is that God is so good that even his goodness cascades down on unbelievers in great ways. Like rain and harvest and all these many gifts that they do receive from the hand of God. Even though they don't have what we have, which is saving faith and saving grace. So in that way, I think what Jesus is saying is we love our neighbors and pray for those who persecute us because in the same way, though God is not under obligation morally to care for those outside of his children, he does by his character. And our character should be marked the same way that Jesus calls us and tells us that God's character is marked, which is in giving grace, loving and praying for enemies that persecute us. So God is under no more obligation to love the rebel sinner who is unrepentant. Only we as Christians can call him God and Father. But we can can see that goodness done on behalf of God in our personal relationships. So what does this mean for us? I think we can say that loving our enemy is not going to be a warm and fuzzy love. I cannot say that clearly enough. This love is not going to be easy. I might even argue that experientially we might not feel like love at all to us. Because we know what love feels like. We know what it feels like to love our children, our spouse, our friends, our family. We know what love is and this feeling isn't that. But I think God or Christ understands that in verses 45 and 40, or 46 and 47, when He says, "For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors love those who love them? And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you going to do? What are you doing more than others? Do, do not even the Gentiles do the same?" He's saying, are you, "Are you really that different? If you love those who are easy to love." Even those dirty Gentiles do that. It's essentially what he's saying. You high and mighty Jews, are you really no better than them? I mean, even tax collectors love their friends and family. So what are you going to do when it's an enemy or a persecutor of your faith? How are you going to respond when they come for your property because of your faith? Or when they insult you in the marketplace? Are you going to love the easy ones only? Are you going to love the enemies too? And I just, I got this illustration from a sermon. It's way better than anything I can put together. So let me read to you, uh, it's again, Kent Hughes, uh, a pastor who pastored in Illinois for a lot of years, just put together some really interesting uh, notes on this sermon. Let me read you an illustration he gives about his wife's best friend. So I'm going to say my wife. It's not my wife. It's his, this is his story. The best illustration I know to explain what Jesus is talking about comes from the life of one of my wife's dearest friends. She and her family had just returned from the mission field and had rented a rather nice townhouse. At least it was very nice compared to what they had been living in on the mission field. She is very creative and did a wonderful job of decorating the place and they settled in. Only one thing was wrong. The family who moved in next door, they turned the front yard into a desert broke the windows out of their house. They were always using foul language, urinated in the front yard, and threw a whole can of orange paint over the patio walls. My wife's friend was really angry. She did not like her neighbors. She was not happy with the Lord for putting her where he had put her. Realizing that her heart was not right, she got down on her knees and said, Lord, You know that I don't like these people at all. God help me to love them. She baked her neighbors a pie and took it to them, thus beginning a caring relationship. Those neighbors did not change. Let me say that again. Those neighbors did not change, but she did. She had begun to love them. When those neighbors moved away, she wept. What an example of intelligent, volitional love that says, I will love by the grace of Christ within me. So again, I think, I think this, this idea of loving our enemies can cut both ways as Christians. We, we have times where, where we're persecuted for the name right? Those are, those are times that are hard, but oftentimes we see them coming. And I think for a lot of us, we know what, if we're going to be persecuted for our faith, we, I think for a lot of us, those verses kick in. They say, okay, if I'm being persecuted for my faith, I know what to do. Stand firm, be, be loving, be kind, and all those things. But what do we do when we just see evil in the wild? Just a, a, a crazy neighbor that won't do anything right. What do we do there? And I think in this example, we see when we experience evil in the wild, just out there seeing sinners do sinning things. It is good for us even to, to know that that's a spiritual battle and know that that evil that will butt up against our, our Christian convictions time and time again are met with, with loving and praying for those types of people in our lives. And then Jesus ends this chapter and this section of the Sermon on the Mount with this, this truly haunting phrase in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect so how are you doing with that you know that whole being perfect question are you being perfect have you done a hundred percent I mean what's your scorecard on enemies on retaliation on keeping your word on your marriage on your thought life on your anger I mean just these last six paragraphs alone can pretty much damn all of us if we're being honest like we have no, there's no perfection to be had here. None. So what is going on? I think Jesus is ratcheting up the intensity to say, let me be clear. You cannot be holy. You cannot live at a level that exceeds the, the, the righteousness of the Pharisees. That's the intensity. If, if you're saying to yourself, maybe you, Brett, because I, I know you and you definitely have a lot of work to do, but not me, I would just gently encourage you to read verses 21 through 48 again and just realize that that our even our thought life condemns us even if you never said a bad word about anyone our thought life alone condemns us so this is truly bad news we are not perfect and the standard that God requires of us is perfection and perfection alone we must be perfect as God is perfect that lack of perfection, that not living up to the standard of God that, and what he is called, is we have a word for that. It's called sin. Anything that we do contrary to the teaching of the Sermon on the Mouth or anywhere else in Scripture, we are breaking God's law in thought, word, and deed. It's what we've seen all through chapter 5. It's why, it's why unbelievers are so perplexed about the teaching of Jesus. They don't get it. They look at it and they say, that's a pretty high standard. He was a great moral teacher. They're missing the point. The point is this needs to break us into realizing that we are sinners. Some other verses for your consideration. Isaiah 59, 2. Your sins have created a separation between you and your God. Romans three twenty three, All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We are separate. We are pulled apart from God by this sin. This lack of perfection separates us. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very person speaking these words to us this morning, is that he lived a perfect life. And he gave a perfect sacrifice. And he provides the perfection we so desperately need to be brought into relationship with God. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of Christ. So, if the Spirit is showing you your need, showing you that, that, that perfection is the standard and you don't have it, turn to Christ. Turn to Jesus as the Savior of the world. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and he will clothe you with his perfection. You will receive his righteousness and he will take your sin and you will have eternal life even today. And and finally, maybe some additional just closing thoughts about how to apply this text to us. If you are trusting in Christ, what do you do with this text? As I've said before, it's radically countercultural. There are no guardrails here. There's no teaching here that tells us what to do in your specific situation. That's what's what's so beautiful about Jesus' teaching. Because we have Christ, we don't need to take our own revenge. We don't need to get even with anyone, regardless of the circumstance. We can trust God in everything. That he will make all things right. That he will work all things for our good. That's all. He'll make all things right in all things for our good, And we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us not only endure these things, but to love and pray for those unlovable people. God can do that for us. He can make love happen in our hearts for those whom you would have once called an enemy. Whether it's because of your faith and you're being persecuted or you've just run up against sinful evil in the world, you now have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you to walk with the Lord and to love and pray for your enemies. So call on Christ today for the grace to love and to pray for your enemies. Let your love for Christ shine through. 2 Peter 1.3 says that we have everything right now that we need for life and holiness. Including in that is the grace to love, pray, and endure everything for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, your, the words of your son Jesus are serious and they are that can be haunting for us as we, as we look in ourselves and we realize that we don't have the strength, the, the ability. We don't have anything that would, that would cause us to, to live, live this standard that you've called us to, this perfect standard. And yet, you've told us that Christ has purchased us. Titus, 3 says that, or Titus 2 says that you have purchased for yourself a people for your own possession, zealous for good deeds. So you put that in us. You've, you've given us the desires to, to live holy and great and perfect lives for you. So give us the grace. If you've given us the desire by the Spirit, you can give us the strength by the Spirit. So we ask two things. One, that you would save the lost. Show them here this morning that their, their efforts, their futile efforts to, to live to your standard will not work. And that Christ would, would be the only remedy that they could have for an eternal life apart from you. Christ can bring them back by his work. We ask that you would do that. And the second thing we would ask for believers is that you would give us a joy in obeying these words. And a, and a joy in loving and praying for our enemies. And, and a joy in enduring and, and, and dealing with, with the, the, the sinful acts of life. Even in our personal relationships that you would cause us to endure, cause us to love, cause us to pray. May we be people who are marked by Christ's love and Christ's work. It's in his name we pray. Amen.